Welcome this 22nd day of March 1963 to the 219th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. I believe that I have covered about all of the announcements at this time and we will go to the speaker. I do claim some credit for this speaker. Uh, Dr. Stackpole mentioned Napoleon and the nine or ten principles of war when he spoke to us at Gettysburg last summer on our tour. And it flashed into my mind at that time, it would be nice to have someone explain these principles of war and relate them to the, uh, to the Civil War. Who better than Ned Allen, who really has been at this table probably more times than I have, uh, speaking to you. So we got in contact with Ned and he consented to do it. He made mention of the fact that uh, Napoleon used these rules of warfare. He had to, but he didn't discover them. He said there are certain maxims of his, of course, uh, and I may be able to use some, but the principles of war are, are as old as a bow and arrow. A New York City, city street gang and a full-scale battle are fought on the same principles. Actually, they are merely a matter of applied common sense. So then he decided to take up this subject, which he's going to talk on us to us tonight, on Snake Creek Gap. Ned was born in Dixon, Nebraska, as your uh, bulletin says, but he considers himself a Hoosier, and John Wilhelm and I are glad to have him with us. His grandfather was chaplain of the 53rd Indiana, and uh, his other grandfather, a captain in the 44th Indiana. Ned has been in the, was in the National Guard for approximately 30 years, 35 years, and then became director of the Atlanta Historical Society. He's been a host of ours down in at Georgia, both in the east and the western end in Atlanta and over on the coast. He's a specialist in the military campaigns of the Civil War, and uh, we do not think that we can offer you any better speaker. Now everybody wants to introduce Ned, and I'm going to introduce another man who wants to introduce him to at this time. Otto Eisenschimmel, you had something special for us. Will you? One evening, my wife and I found ourselves in the dining room of a Chattanooga hotel. We had taken an automobile trip down south. We were enjoying our supper when a gentleman walked in in the uniform of a colonel of the United States. He came to our table and introduced himself. He says, my name is Ned Julian. Will you do me the honor of letting, you, letting me be your guide on the way from here to Atlanta? Well, I was dumbfounded. That's a Christmas present at the wrong time. <laughs> Naturally, we took him up immediately, and we certainly found a lot of things that the average man doesn't see. I certainly never would have found all the little niches and corners and what happened there, uh, which uh, Ned uh, introduced us to. But that wasn't enough. He invited us to his house. Introduced us to his charming family, among others, to a nine-year-old daughter. And he said, I'll ask her any question pertaining to the Atlanta campaign. Well, what would you ask a nine-year-old girl? I said, when was the battle of Rizaka? She wrinkled up her pretty little nose, smiled at me, and wouldn't answer. Ned said, she doesn't answer such questions. I'll give her one. What did the 27th Tennessee do during the Atlanta campaign? <laughs> she said, the 27th Tennessee belonged to Maine's brigade, Hardy's Corps, and was engaged in heavy fighting around Decatur. I had an irresistible desire to crawl under the table. <laughs> now I have a nine-year-old daughter knows that much about the Atlanta campaign. How much does a father know? <laughs> and is there anything that he doesn't know? Well, we'll soon find out. Thank you. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. 
we got my feet over there. <laughs> well, daughter hasn't changed except the subject has. <laughs> you know, it's um, warming, really. It's heartwarming to be back with this particular crowd that I've traveled with and seen a lot of and have uh, so many very good friends that I'm proud of. And I thank you for letting me come back tonight. I uh, have been agreeably surprised in the weather, Lord knows. I uh, started to unpack some of my Alaskan gear, my parka and my mucklucks to come up on this trip. And then at the last minute, I thought, well, those people survive. I guess I can. Much to my amazement, in Madison, uh, nice spring weather. And here, it was just a little bit cooler. I couldn't quarrel with this weather any place. But I did realize in Madison yesterday and in Chicago today, I was way up in the north because not one soul has said a word about Wally Butts. <laughs> I um, had been in Madison before and I'd only seen that state house, however, from the outside and I was very curious to see it. See, it's an unusual building architecturally, those of you who know it. So I went over yesterday afternoon and had a look. And I was quite pleased with what I saw. But I saw uh, a lot of people around, and uh, I noticed there were quite a lot of uh, men of younger years and middle-aged, a lot of them uh, rather bucolic-looking, I would say, and some of them not entirely too responsible-looking. So having just been through the same thing in Georgia, I was convinced that the legislature was in session. <laughs> <laughs> I um, don't know whether some of you who have been in Vanna know Greg Schaefer or not. He's a short, heavy-set, elderly gentleman who is, um, has one of the good businesses in Atlanta, but he's one of the most unreconstructed of all unreconstructed rebels, and that's going a long way. <laughs> Old Griggs always has the needle out. And so um, the Wilbur Kurtz has had a little party the other night on Sunday, and Schaefer's were there, and we were there, of course, and so on. So as we were leaving, old Briggs got me aside. We'd been talking a little bit about my Yankee ancestry, as he always brings it around to say. And he says, Ned, he says, um, do you know why Yankees are like hemorrhoids? Well, I braced myself, and I didn't. He said, well, he says, they're a pain in the ass, and they won't stay up where they belong. I uh, remember Warren got me into this, and um, I do this with a little fear and trembling at this group because it's going to be a little dull, maybe, I don't know, but um, I see and read Sadar here, I should say, and read Sadar going many ideas of people who have uh, perfectly successful people in other walks of life, but uh, haven't had any military service worth mentioning. and. Um, I wanted to say sometimes, once in a while, I want to say something about a general. What generals, uh, something about the care and feeding in generals, what they actually have to put up with. It's a little different than things in uh, business life because uh, where you may go bankrupt, you don't necessarily get shot doing it. And uh, there aren't so many people in newspaper fields and historians and so on who are going to take you apart for something that was not necessarily your fault. It's kind of a strange profession. A commanding general of a large force is a sort of a lonely individual. It's a lonely job, and sometimes it's a thankless job. He has a responsibility that can't be shared with anybody. Many people may help him to do this and that and the other, but when the chips are down, he's the boy. He has to take the sock if it comes. He may make the most sensible and even the most brilliant of decisions. His plans may be flawless. And his orders, very simply couched, anybody can understand them, Order, issued early, plenty of time, everybody to make preparations. And yet, from that point on, he's completely at the mercy of subordinates. Uh, and some of the most trusted of subordinates sometimes fail. Then, too, there are various imponderables, weather, ammunition dump at some enemy aircraft or artillery shell hits, or all sorts of things. In the old days, it used to be uh, a matter of a... Uh, horse 
did a team breaking a leg on a narrow road could jam up a train for enough time to uh, get things out of kilter. And then generals in all history have had to bear the brunt of things which actually happened because they were interfered with from the seat of government. Uh, people who should have hired them, turned them loose, and left them alone kept putting the finger on. For political reasons, or for personal reasons, or for some other reasons, they insisted on managing the thing from the back areas where they really didn't know what was going on. Two uh, good examples of that, one 100 years ago in the case of old Joe Johnson in the Atlanta campaign, and much more recently in the case of Douglas MacArthur, where we lost a war simply by because what he wanted to do in Korea and win a victory was not politically acceptable. Unfortunately for so many of our general officers who have become prominent because they were great or not so great, generals are not ordinarily judged for posterity by his professional uh, or their professional contemporaries. They're judged uh, by people in comfortable studies or on lecture platforms or in editorial offices or uh, even at the press club bars. Um, historians, teachers, correspondents, editorial writers, columnists, various other breeds of writers, all of whom know what happened and know it very well, but they, very few of them ever know precisely why it happened because they don't bother to look quite that far back. That takes quite a little doing. So most of our people are judged, most of the old pros in the military service of this age and earlier ages, they are judged by this cult of, um, well, I might say second-guessers who um, shape all of our historical material, which becomes our permanent history, and unfortunately, public opinion. That uh, doesn't necessarily tie in with what I'm going to talk about tonight. I just did it to set the mood. There is um, nothing very mysterious about the principles of war. The nine fundamental principles, as they're taught in every staff school in the civilized world, every staff and command school, they are um, simply time-tested truths that govern the conduct of war. But their proper application, or at least the proper application of most of them, is essential to any military victory. Sometimes a commander may uh, ignore one or more of the principles of war. Uh, usually, when a given situation lends itself to a calculated risk or to enable him to take advantage of some unusual situation, but a commander must certainly know what he's doing any time he violates one of these things. In the final analysis, they're uh, simply matters of applied common sense. Here they are. First thing is the principle of the objective. Every military operation must be directed towards a clearly defined, decisive, and attainable end. A man can't aim at the sky and expect to get there. His objective must be sensible and attainable. The ultimate military objective, of course, is the destruction of the enemy's armed forces. But uh, this usually involves, of course, intermediate objectives, such as a city or the enemy's uh, means of supplying himself, factories here and there, or other communication means. But whatever the intermediate objectives are followed or are selected, the accomplishment or the attainment of that objective must in some way contribute to the final objective of smashing the enemy's forces and destroying his will to fight. That is objective in its final sense, destroying the enemy's will to fight. Then we have the principle of the offensive. Offensive action is necessary to achieve any decisive result. It enables the commander to set the pace of the operation, to exploit enemy weaknesses, to take advantage of such factors as may favor his own plans, such as a greater uh, strength on his part or greater mobility or some other factor in his uh, favor. And even sometimes when the defensive is forced upon a commander, he always watches for an opportunity 
when he can uh, find some flaw in the other man's operation, when he can hit back, at least to some limited way, he must always return to the offensive if and when he's able even to do it in a limited way, which will temporarily paralyze the other man's operation, even if it doesn't feed him. And of course, all these things should be done in the most economical manner possible. We have the principle of mass. Well, mass doesn't necessarily mean a preponderance of force, a larger army. It is simply the matter of keeping all the ones available force, either in a close compact body or within easy supporting distance of each other. An inferior force gathered and ready to deliver a blow en masse when the opportunity presents itself has frequently been able to achieve victory over a vastly superior force which has been too widely scattered, which has been allowed to get someone out of hand. We have the principle of economy of force, and your first-class people do this one instinctively. They do them all more or less instinctively, but they do this one particularly instinctively. The skillful and prudent use of his available combat force, his total force, can enable a commander again of even an inferior force to achieve startling results by husbanding his old man and his own men and let the other people waste theirs. Your good commander never forgets that a dead soldier is a wasted soldier unless he was killed while he and his comrades were on some mission which accomplished greater results for their own side than it did for the enemy. In other words, whether it cost the enemy more than it cost them. Any soldier who is used up, his life is used up on something that doesn't do his country any good is a wasted soldier, and any competent commander is well aware of that. Your first-class men never waste people's lives. And again, I have to cite my two in that way. There, I picked them out of two wars. MacArthur was outstanding for getting a great deal done with a least possible loss of life. Joe Johnson was the same way. Sherman didn't like to waste life. And I want to cite some of the examples of people who threw men away pretty freely. There's the matter of the principle of maneuver. The object of maneuver is to dispose a force in such a way as to place the enemy at a relative disadvantage. By adroit and timely maneuvers, a commander can achieve results which would otherwise be far more costly. By thinking, by maneuvering, by hitting a man someplace, he can save himself a frontal attack, for instance, as many people rush into rather blindly. Either on the defensive or on the offensive, the art of maneuver is the key to final success. A defensive maneuver which blocks an enemy from attaining his objective can sometimes be almost at least as decisive as a successful offensive maneuver. At least it can deny the other man what he's setting out to do. And there is the principle of unity of command. The decisive application of all of the combat effectiveness of any force requires absolute unity of command. It requires the governing force of a single human brain, the manipulation of a single will. One man must be responsible. No two commanders ever won a battle unless one of them finally took complete charge and made the decisions. All of the authority to act must be vested in a single commander. Further, no battle can be managed successfully from a seat of government. A commander who must wait for a nod from the rear before making a decision is doomed to defeat. If he has to bear the responsibility, he must be giving full authority to meet every situation in his own way. If he fails, we're leaving. But while he has the responsibility of overall command, he should be free to decide. And we have the principle of security. Security is the combination of measures which must be taken to prevent surprise, to gather intelligence, to preserve freedom of action, and to deny information to the enemy. Perhaps no other element in war has led to so many fiascos and damaged so many generals' reputations as has a failure to maintain adequate security. You know some classic examples of it. Then there is the principle of surprise. Surprise is accomplished by striking an enemy at a time, at a place, and in a manner for which he is not prepared and doesn't expect. Successful surprise, even by a much smaller force, can shift the balance of combat power and achieve complete victory. It is not essential that an enemy be taken completely unaware, but only that he is allowed to become aware 
too late to take any effective steps to save himself. The factors which contribute to successful surprise, of course, are speed, deception, the unexpected use of additional forces, effective intelligence, and that's highly important, or variations of uh, man's tactical or uh, <coughs> applicatory schemes. He may be following one pattern, suddenly he shifts his pattern, as in football. But they, those things produce surprise. And last but not least of these nine old principles of war, which were old when the Peloponnesian War was fought, we have the principle of simplicity. Direct, simple plans and clear and concise orders minimize chances for error. Other factors being reasonably equal, the simplest plan always has the best chance of success. Simplicity is simply the avoidance of complicated plans and instructions, and complicated plans and complicated instructions have ruined many an operation and many a general. Now, uh, it's not intended to imply that uh, every successful commander rehearses these things to himself every time he makes a decision. Since they are matters of simple common sense, as we've said, ordinary everyday business sense, any competent commander will apply most of these things instinctively. He may weigh the use of one or two, but most of them are just ABC things to him once he's trained. There's one man, a highly successful general, who undoubtedly never heard of the principles of war. And yet he applied them so unerringly and uh, simply by instinct that uh, he never failed to set out to do what he wanted to do, except in one last operation, which he was outweighed and couldn't help himself. And that man, of course, was Nathan Bedford Forrest. All of the lectures that have ever been delivered on the principal surprise, none of them has ever stated more clearly than Forrest did when he said, substantially so, that he would trade all the tactics ever published for 10 minutes of the bulls. No one ever comprehended any more clearly than he did the devastating effects of an unexpected stroke even against a vastly superior force. And of course, his career is full of occasions when he struck people unexpectedly and uh, overwhelmed them. Sometimes we find, the, find certain principles being violated. In order to make the fullest use of other principles, for instance, um, Chancellorsville is a classic example. You will recall that at Chancellorsville, Lee's force was less than half of that of his opponent, General Hooker. Lee had organized a very strong position around Fredericksburg. Hooker made a very careful plan and then made a wide enveloping movement up, uh, up the river uh, across to Kelly's Ford, as I recall. The idea of forcing Lee out of these entrenchments of his and forcing him back on Richmond, forcing him to retreat merely by using largely the scheme of maneuver, because I don't think Hooker was too anxious to tangle General Lee. He wanted to uh, force him out, as I say, by the scheme of maneuver and overwhelming force. <coughs> However, General Lee hadn't the slightest intention of retreating for anybody. Even though Longstreet, one of his most trusted lieutenants, was absent on a foraging expedition with two uh, very dependable divisions of his corps, Lee nevertheless made a very daring plan. First, he took the offensive against Hooker, and the very boldness of this action caused Hooker to go on the defensive himself, thus giving up the initiative to Lee right at the onset of this thing. Hooker got the wind up when Lee moved. Deliberately, Lee now violated the principle of mass in order to exploit the principle of surprise. He threatened Hooker's position from in front with less than uh, half of his men, uh, somewhat, uh, I believe, uh, good figures, around 17, 18,000 men. I'm not too familiar with that theater. But uh, less than half because he detached the other part of his army, about 26,000 men, under Stonewall Jackson to make this big turning movement right under Hooker's nose. I think that Lee knew his men pretty well, knew his enemy pretty well. Started him off on this daylight move right in front of Hooker's uh, right, very blithely, leaving himself with this absurdly small force to contain Hooker while this was going on. So you see in that operation, Lee completely disregarded the principle of mass to a degree which in anybody else would be considered foolhardy. Yet, by doing so, he was able to 
seize the initiative, in other words, to resume the offensive, and to place himself on the offensive, taking it away from Hooker. And by so doing, he was able to deliver one of the most successful surprises in the whole history of warfare. Now, uh, consider the violations which led to Hooker's defeat. First, when he heard the news that Lee, who should, by all sensible standards in his book, be on the defensive, had actually advanced to meet him, the news so shattered Hooker's confidence that he probably took three more drinks and immediately abandoned the offensive. So despite his great superiority of force, he just surrendered the initiative to Lee and sat back and waited for what was going to happen to him. Worse than that, a man can get the wind up once and maybe be forgiven, but worse than that, he did the thing for which there is no excuse in war. He neglected his security. He refused to believe the reports which were reaching his headquarters, which should have warned him that Lee was up to something very unusual. I think who was more culpable than Hooker, his right-wing commander, Major General O. Howard, even more culpable. People back there were trying to tell him at his headquarters that a tremendous body of troops were moving off to the right, and he wouldn't take it seriously. He made no, so far as I can see, he made no real plans to check any movement on the right, and so he got caught like the old sitting duck. But regardless of any of the other principles of war involved, Lee's use of the element of surprise, combined with the failure of both Hooker and Howard, enabled him to so maneuver his far smaller force as to create a federal disaster. Maneuver, simplicity, offensive, and surprise. Well, every battle and every campaign, of course, will offer us examples, but since uh, I like the good, rich soil in North Georgia, I think we'll just go back there. <coughs> to refresh your memories, I'll remind you that on the 1st of May of 1864, General Joseph E. Johnson, commanding the Confederate Army of Tennessee, uh, had his army in bivouacs in and around Dalton, Georgia. Dalton is about 100 miles north of Atlanta, and Atlanta, of course, was Johnson's base of supplies. He had to depend on the railroad from Atlanta to supply him. His left, the direction from which the bulk of his enemy would probably approach, was very well covered by the great march of Rocky Face Ridge, which is some 15, 15 and a half miles long. Uh, heavily fortified, so he had no fears there. Immediately to the north, to his front, theoretically, uh, Crow Valley and a wide tangle of hills and uh, thickets and uh, ravines made it very easy to fortify. It would have been a very difficult operation to turn him to push him out of there, and very costly, and of course Sherman wasn't going to do anything like that. However, Johnson wasn't very happy about it all because he had too much respect for Sherman's ability and Sherman's good sense to think that Sherman would make a very serious attack there. He'd make a holding attack, of course. Uh, have to do that. But Johnson was very positive that when the time came, Sherman would have to push him out, or would push him out of this Dalton position by a turning movement. Now, where that turning movement might be delivered was something else again. Through the winter of 1863 and 64, or rather through the spring of 64, late winter and spring, Sherman had made plans to move one of his major units, General McPherson's Army of the Tennessee, out of its areas, its winter areas up and spread around in central Tennessee, to move it not down to join the main army in front of Dalton, outside of Chattanooga, but to move it south through Alabama, through Gadsden, through Rome, Georgia, to wreck Joe Johnson's communications too far to his rear for him to outrun it, Sherman Holt. Now, uh, since that plan uh, had been in being over a number of weeks, Joe Johnson's intelligence picked it up, and Johnson knew it. Uh, yet, he couldn't trust that entirely. Many things might interrupt it, and as it did, of course, as we know. But nevertheless, he had to think about it. There were two other routes which Sherman might turn him. Uh, two routes north of the Ustinala River. One would be a little bit difficult due to the road uh, structure and terrain and so on. But the nearest and most practicable was through Snake Creek Gap. Snake Creek Gap is a long, narrow valley which lies between the lower six miles of what we'll call Rocky Face Ridge. It has another name down there, but it's actually a continuation of this uh, high, mountain ridge, the last, about the last five and a half miles to be exact, that lies at the east side of the, of the gap. 
On the other side, which closes the gap, is the upper six miles, or five and a half miles, of Horn Mountain, which starts right there at the north entrance to the gap and marches about, oh, 12 or 13 miles down towards the Ustanala River. Snake Creek Gap is probably the, certainly one of the most misrepresented pieces of terrain in all Civil War history. Fletcher Pratt, whose uh, work uh, many people take seriously, um, <laughs> describes Snake Creek Gap as a narrow gorge with the bushes on the banks of the Ustanala River near Osaka. And he goes on to describe it as an awesome ravine where the sun never reached the bottom. I sometimes wonder what sort of thing Mr. Pratt used to drink. <laughs> now, uh, since uh, neither Rusaka nor the Ustanala River is within four miles of the south uh, uh, debouche of uh, Snake Creek Gap, and since the sun has ripened many a crop of corn in Snake Creek Gap over the last 80 or 90 years, it is certainly no deep, narrow ravine where the sun never reaches the bottom. Other writers have been almost as fanciful about it. And some of these have, uh, were men who actually made the trip through the gap in 1864. They've described it as a narrow defile. Even Jacob Cox, who's a doggone good reporter, Jacob D. Cox, uh, gives that same impression. Well, I think I can account for it. Um, I think that um, because it was so very heavily wooded at that time, there were no farming operations in the gap till after the Civil War. Since it was so very heavily wooded, since the road had fallen into disrepair, it hadn't been used much for some years, before the railroad was built, it had been the main road between the upper towns, Chattanooga or Rossville, Rossville and the landing, and uh, down to Calhoun, that had been the main road in those days, and history repeating itself is again. But through the years, the railroad had uh, taken over and it had fallen into disrepair, so it was just a little muddy track fording many streams. Trees were high, so I suppose a sleepy, tired man riding through there, and especially if the light wasn't too good, maybe at dusk or something of the sort, I could see where he might get the idea he was in a narrow ravine. But if he could look past the trees a little bit and see this mountain ridge on each side, he'd realize he was in a valley. I cite all this because um, there's been so much criticism about the failure to defend Snake Creek Gap with a small force, as so many well-meaning writers have put it. Actually, had Joe Johnson split his force and sent a division down to try to hold Snake Creek Gap, it might have done it for a while, the upper end of the gap, providing they were well enough organized and well enough supported by artillery fires, he might have held it for a while, but not for long. For the simple reason, Sherman could do precisely what he did the following October. If you remember during the pursuit of Hood in October, when they were coming through Snake Creek Gap in reverse, Hood left a corps, the major portion of an army corps, in the gap to block Sherman at that point. Sherman checkmated that by merely, or uh, compensated for that by merely, stripping his infantry of their trains and so on and sending them up over the ridge on the east side. Unfortunately for his operation, it was too late in the day for them to take full advantage. They couldn't risk going down in the dark and having a melee in the dark, so Hood's people escaped. But there's a case of an army corps, the major portion of it, not holding the gap even, even, even long enough to do any firing. So certainly a small party was not going to hold it. So Joe Johnson could not be held culpable for that. I'm uh, going into some detail about the gap here, merely to uh, set the stage for some uh, things to do with the principles of war there. Snake Creek Gap, of course, led to Johnson's rear. Joe Johnson knew it. Yet nowhere in all of our Civil War history, I'm sure, has the hue and the cry been louder than from the pack which attacks him for not defending Snake Creek Gap. Now consider Joe Johnson's position. Consider what he had to think about. His base is 100 miles away. It's a very vital city. Um, he has to depend on it for transportation. 
His own field transportation is very short. He, can, uh, he could move to the rear using the railroad to augment his transportation successfully. But so far as moving forward, as the government at Richmond wanted him to do, I might add, he couldn't. He couldn't cut off from his base of supplies, abandon his communications, and move into a semi-barren country with a very small wagon train. He couldn't do it. His artillery was limited in the early part of the campaign. It was always limited somewhat in numbers, not seriously, but the, uh, in firepower, because he started off with a lot of six-pounder pieces, which were later replaced, but they weren't much compared particularly with the weapons that the Union Army had. Then, too, until the campaign was actually getting underway, until the preliminary movements were in progress, one of the bodies, which became one of his three corps, was still scattered through Mississippi and Alabama. So uh, it was supposed to be on his way to him. He was confident that it would reach him, and yet the vagaries of the Richmond government were such he couldn't depend on it. In front of him was Sherman. Sherman had three first-class senior subordinates in General Thomas, and General Schofield, and General McPherson. Uh, they were men who were experienced, they were loyal, or able, and he trusted them. Sherman was just in front of his heavily fortified base, Chattanooga. He had plenty of supplies right at his command. He had a short wagon haul to supply his armies. And above all, he had the full loyal support of his government. In his domain, he was the boss. He was the king. He had received his orders. Everybody had confidence in him, and he knew that no one would interfere with him, which is golden in any line of endeavor, and certainly in war. Now, Johnson knew these things. He knew uh, Sherman's capabilities. He knew Sherman was going to outman uh, him by a great uh, preponderance here. He knew that Atlanta must be held. Johnson knew that Atlanta was one of the vital cities of the Confederacy. He knew so much of the manufacturing was done there, so much of the procurement was done, so much of the transshipping was done there. Um, great hospital centers have been formed there. He knew that once Atlanta fell, opening the way into the interior of Georgia, the Confederacy was just coming into a state of collapse. The East and the West might go, but as long as the Central South remained in being and the Confederate armies remained in being, and he had one of the two major Confederate armies, the Confederacy could get along for quite some time. But if they lost Atlanta, the game was pretty much up. He knew that. So he knew that Atlanta was bound to become Sherman's objective. He knew that all of Sherman's planning, all of Sherman's thinking, of course, was to destroy him, if and when he could, but his immediate territorial objective had to be Atlanta, Georgia. It was the most worthwhile thing, and obviously Sherman would go for it. Of course, he knew about the Rome plan. He knew that uh, Sherman might send McPherson that way, and if he did, he, Johnson, had to be back there to check that movement, or else he would just destroy the railroad and go on and move in with federal opposition and destroy Atlanta, while Sherman held uh, Johnson at bay in North Georgia. So old Johnson made his decision based on those things. He made a very sensible decision. He made the decision to resume the defensive. What else could the man do? However, that decision wasn't made at the last minute, of course. It had been shaping for quite some time as um, he argued and pleaded for this and that from Richmond, for artillery, for train material, animals, uh, wagons, and so on, and pleaded for reinforcements, wanted to get an army in being that he could fight Sherman successfully and not necessarily on the defensive. But since all he got from Richmond was advice, and it wasn't very good advice, he had to act entirely on his own. Now consider the principles of war involved in Johnson's decision. Above all, he had to think in terms of economy of force. Well, he thought instinctively in terms of economy of force. He wasted very few men, that man. He had to think in terms of mass because his safety, the safety of his army, depended on his ability to move fast when and if that was indicated and it was going to come pretty shortly. He had to be in a position where he could pick up and go without losing detachments, without jamming roads, without people getting lost, without long, uh, without long extensions of his lines. When the time came, he had to plan on the principal maneuver, because even a retreat is an evasive maneuver. 
So he had to do this and make his plans in such a way that when Sherman finally tipped his hands, revealed what he was going to do, he could pull out in time to check what he knew would be Sherman's attempt to <coughs> stop him north of the Ustinala River, bring him to bay, and perhaps end the campaign there. Now, all this called for the utmost simplicity to make it work. Johnson's plans were simple. They were flawless. All of his uh, commanders were alerted. They knew what they were going to do. In the meantime, he depended on the principle of security to detect any approaching bodies which were not in his immediate front. He knew where Thomas's people were. He knew where Schofield's people were. He depended on the principle of security to tip him off if and when McPherson appeared anywhere near his front in order to give him time to fall back clear of the Snake Creek Gap area. He wasn't interested in defending Snake Creek Gap. He was only interested in getting away from that area, getting in the clear before Sherman could trap him. Now you may ask, why didn't he go ahead any time? He couldn't for political reasons. Uh, the situation, his relations with the president being what they were, and uh, the president, Mr. Davis, having ideas that uh, actually they should uh, go on the offensive and move north, uh, blind to the lack of supplies, blind to the small army he had. He had at least, to please Mr. Davis, to stay in their relations, he had to at least stay in Dalton to the very last minute. For the political effect and to please the press, he had to stay in Dalton until the last minute. But he was not going to stay there beyond the last minute. Sherman, of course, had a superior force. He was near his base, had a free hand. So the first in his favor, of course, is complete unity of command. He was free to assume the, to select his own objective and to assume the offensive, what he wanted to do it. The principle of war played with him in this case. He could afford to violate the principle of mass, send McPherson on a detached mission from his army, in order to exploit the principle of surprise, because in the meantime, he was confident he could hold Johnson's attention and not let him get out of there until he was ready. And Sherman's scheme of maneuver was just as simple as it was effective, and it was masked by very complete, very well-organized security measures. And so eight of the principles of war were involved in Sherman's case. Now, I don't uh, mention in his case any more about the <coughs> business of economy of force, because he, too, was a man who uh, never wasted life if he could help it. Historians and newspaper people don't like that trait in a general, but soldiers do. <laughs> to put it more simply, Sherman could afford to reduce his mass and to employ maneuver in order to exploit the principle of surprise. His whole plan boiled down to that. On the other side, Johnson, with his lesser force and his long line of communications, could not risk violating the principle of mass. But he must plan to maneuver his army into a safer position when the time came. In the meantime, as I have said, he must rely on security to give him due and timely warning of approaching danger. <coughs> so what happened? Sherman's planning was excellent. He had good men to do his work for him. His main force was where it should be, covering his own base and threatening the enemy. You may remember that General Thomas wanted the main body to go through Snake Creek Gap and try to tap Johnson. But that was not a very good idea with a man like Joe Johnson, because if he saw his front uncovered, he probably would have been in Sherman's base in Chattanooga. Anything could happen with a man who thinks like that. Anyway, it was not the thing to do. Sherman could have been in a very embarrassing position had Johnson gotten between him and his base. So he employed his main mass for the time being between Johnson and his, Sherman's own base, sending McPherson to do the end run in this case. Now he had McPherson en route not to Rome and Gadsden, but he had it for McPherson with orders issued at the last minute to protect the security element. You see, the Rome plan had been known for weeks with the result Joe Johnson knew it. However, McPherson probably was told secretly what was going to happen some days before this, so the plan was made rather late, that decision was made rather late for reasons that aren't germane here. But McPherson was instructed not to issue his warning orders, not to instruct his senior subordinates until he just barely had time to get them to Chattanooga and on the way to the right of the army. 
With the result, many units, you'll see it reflected in their reports, their screams of anger and anguish because they had to leave cherished baggage and this, that, and the other because they had to be in the road. But it did what it was supposed to do. It protected security because there was no way in the world that Joe Johnson's intelligence service could get through Sherman's lines, reach Johnson, and tell him what was happening before it had actually happened. Security at its very best in that particular uh, the facet of it. So Sherman had Johnson on the way to Snake Creek Gap, which is in Johnson's rear, well out of sight of, John, of, Sher of Johnson's view, you know, well out of sight of his army. Now many writers say that McPherson was detached from the right of Sherman's command. He wasn't any such doggone thing. He was never near the main body. He was never near any place where Joe Johnson could see him or any of Joe Johnson's people could see him unless it was Joe Johnson's cavalry who were the security force. Sherman's wagons were loaded. They were parked in convenient places to take the proper roads at the proper time. And he was holding Johnson's intention in front. Well, Johnson's uh, planning was just as thorough because his forces were in compact order. He was well organized. And um, he was ready to withstand any assault in his front, any assault that might happen. And of course, there was some quite spirited fighting in front, but it was all for show while McPherson came around the rear. So the element of security is the principal thing he worries about at the moment. Joe Johnson was very sensibly aware, despite all the claptrap from Richmond, that Dalton was not important, that his army was the important thing. Keep that army in being, the Confederacy had an asset. He had to do it. He had to economize that force. He knew that Sherman would strike at his communications. He knew that he must always interpose between Sherman and those communications. So he very wisely had sent his baggage trains, his excess baggage, to bivouac areas below the Ustinawa River. And uh, well out of the way, he put the existing roads from Dalton to the Ustinawa River south into excellent condition and uh, constructed two more roads which would facilitate the movement of his elements. And they had their orders to use them. He was ready when the time came to get out of there. He alerted every major commander. They were already prearranged routes were selected because these things made for simplicity, for speed of maneuver, and of course for a movement in mass and uh, avoided the risk of losing people unnecessarily, employed them in mass. To give himself ample time, should Sherman use the Snake Creek Gap route, which he didn't know yet, rather than that longer route by Rome, Johnson had put Wheeler's Cavalry Corps of course, it was a normal mission for the Cavalry Corps. But they were on a big outpost line with their right covering the Conestoga River or Creek, take your choice, on Johnson's extreme right front. All across the head of the Crow Valley area out here, down around Tunnel Hill, Ringgold, which is to his left front, and then down the big sweep of Taylor's Ridge, which is the highest mountainous element west of Rocky Face Gap. Now, in Taylor's Ridge, there were three roads, one through Nickajack Gap, which was only, oh, I should say, uh, 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 about 11 or 12 miles below Ringgold, 10 miles below Ringgold on Taylor's Ridge, but rather close to the Union uh, concentration. Uh, that was going to be used by the Union Army. He knew it. He didn't worry about it. He was one of these things he accepted. But Gordon Springs Gap was about five miles below that, and four miles below that was the key gap of them all, Ships Gap which McPherson used, known today as Maddox Gap, now on the very main highway down through there. McPherson's fast move, coupled with his very tight security, got him into that area by the 7th. And in fact, by the night of the 7th of May, his head of column, Sprague's Brigade of Dodge's Corps, was in occupancy of Snake Crab of Ship's Gap on Taylor's Ridge. Now that's a key place. That's one thing that the cavalry was supposed to be protecting. That's one thing from where, one place from where Johnson was supposed to get messages just as fast as horses could gallop, even if it killed the horses. Messages back the minute he had uh, 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 noticed, the minute, the minute was observed, a, a heavy column of Union infantry approaching that area. Yet, Sprague occupied the gap except for a few Confederate soldiers on the other side, which were driven off in the other direction, and I think a few of them captured, but I can't prove it. Except for that, 
Nobody in the gap, no security whatsoever. Why is a big secret on somebody's part. I, uh, knowing that a few days before cavalry had been in the gap, knowing they'd been in Lafayette, four miles away, the county seat, uh, those few days before, I'm inclined to believe that they were probably, to use a good expressive modern term, goofing off in Lafayette on this particular day, not expecting anything to happen yet. I think that's the reason. Nevertheless, Wheeler, one of Sherman, one of Johnson's most trusted subordinates, not Wheeler personally, but thought that for which Wheeler was responsible, let him down completely. The timely warning which Johnson was supposed to have by his principle of security failed him. And so, McPherson was through the two emergency valleys, through Villanelle, and had his hell of a head of column out into Sugar Valley, outside of through Snake Creek Gap, before Johnson was fully informed that he was there. That is a complete failure of security, and that is the real story of Snake Creek Gap. There was no reason to defend the doggone thing physically with soldiers because it would violate the principle of mass for a purely pointless reason. The real thing was to hold the mass, prepare to maneuver at the right time, and escape the trap when the trap was about to be sprung. Nevertheless, Johnson's preparations were so thorough, his plans were so simple, that when he did order a move, he still didn't move for another 48 hours because he developed this situation. And that's a long talk in itself, but we won't go into it. He developed this situation and held on because something played into his hands. Where Wheeler had not done his role, committed his role, uh, as I say, Wheeler personally was not present, but his uh, supervision was such that his cavalry did not maintain security. Where Wheeler, a trusted lieutenant, had let Johnson down, Sherman was about to be disappointed in something. McPherson was a good officer, first-class officer, well-liked, he was competent, he was, uh, he was uh, sensible. But his orders were to go out, move to Resaca, four miles from the Gap, destroy the railway, and then, if indicated, move back into the Gap and prepare to harass the retreat of Johnson's force. Well, McPherson, some very odd things happened. Now, these people were experienced. They were good soldiers. And yet, when the first troop elements got out in the valley and been there some hours, it was discovered they had no rations. Elements of the 16th Corps, they were tired and they had no rations, and their trains were parked back the other side of the gap in the Villanelle area. Not only that, but uh, for some strange reason, uh, the whole of Ar McPherson's army was not employed in quite the mass that uh, Sherman undoubtedly expected. Elements of the 15th Corps didn't get up. They, they didn't move fast. And then, to complete the picture, they found that Resaca was uh, quite well fortified and garrisoned by an unknown quantity. They didn't know what, but they received a lot of fire from that direction, and so it was no pushover. And then, too, they learned that the railroad, instead of being easily accessible, swung off in the other direction for a ways. All these little things uh, upset McPherson, obviously. But worse, as he marched towards Resaca, he saw on his left all these nicely prepared roads down which might be pouring all of Joe Johnson's army at any time, and so he abandoned his mission without accomplishing it, retreated into Snake Creek Gap, and entrenched, and so informed Sherman. Now, I won't uh, say for or against McPherson. I'm sure he had some good reasons. I'm, uh, but I do think that if certain other people had been commanding that column, I think John Logan of Illinois, had he been commanding that column, he might have gotten in some trouble, but I think he'd have broken the railroad as he was instructed, and there'd have been a hell of a fight out there. Unfortunately, uh, McPherson just didn't deliver. So in the first stage of the campaign, the best laid plans of two general officers were upset by the failures on the parts of their subordinates. Johnson's rear was wide open, McPherson was behind him, Sherman was in front, and yet McPherson's failure to take full advantage to prepare first, to make sure these people were rationed, that they had enough ammunition, that they moved in force, his failure to uh, take care of those elementary details or see that they were taken care of caused him to abandon his mission and come back, thereby leaving Sherman a very angry individual. Sherman had planned, uh, Johnson had planned well, of course, as I have said, and uh, his plans were simple. So even though, even though he did not receive the 48 hours of warning he should have received when he got ready to move, 
Sherman had already started his elements to the left, and of course now, to his right, I should say, to Johnson's left, but now, of course, all those could be detected from Johnson's position, so Johnson just moved out into positions down in Rosaka, ready to check it temporarily. So you see that even the most painstaking observance of the principles of war is no guarantee that uh, someone down the line will not upset the commander's plans. But you can see also that with a careful observance of the principles of war, with the carefulest planning, with all the rules followed, a commander is best prepared to meet unexpected situations as was in Johnson's case. Haphazard planning would have ruined him at that stage of the game. Now these examples of Wheeler and McPherson present two well-known situations in which usually dependable commanders, senior commanders, fail their respective chiefs at critical moments. Because of Wheeler's failure to warn Johnson of McPherson's approach, the Confederate Army of Tennessee was placed in a perilous position. Fortunately, all of Johnson's planning had been such as to, uh, on so high a professional plane, I might say, that he still managed to get clear before Sherman could move his main force around to trap him. Yet today, most writers, Sherman, I mean Johnson, not Wheeler, bears the blame of this thing. Now, because of uh, McPherson's failure to prepare for and to execute a sufficiently determined movement towards his objective, Sherman's plan to trap Johnson north of the Ustinala uh, failed. And of course, uh, again, some writers will say, well, Sherman should have trapped him. They didn't look into why he didn't. The fact he planned to do it, hoped to do it, every preparation was made, he was let down. Whether he would have not uh, is something, but the failure in Johnson's command would certainly have trapped Johnson had McPherson, not in a limited sense at least, failed Sherman. These things only go to prove that uh, generals are a lonely lot, as I said earlier in this talk. But historians, history I should say, I won't insult historians, seldom look behind the scenes to see why necessarily. They uh, never look behind very far, most of them a few more thorough ones, and I will cite Otto for one thorough one. Boy, he gets in and finds out who did what to whom and with what. But most of them uh, do it with a broad brush, and they end up saying, well, Johnson was a bum or Sherman was a bum without the faintest idea. And it goes on and on through the years into our latest wars and so on. Nobody knows today. The history hasn't been written of the Korean operation yet. So many records have been destroyed. I don't know if it'll ever come out as it should. But um, the best of them, the best of generals never despair, however. They shrug off this unmerited blame they stick to a painstaking application of the nine principles of war, and they pray that neither the failures of trusted subordinates nor any of the accidents or imponderables of war will rob either them or their country of ultimate victory. Thank you. Julian is a young man in a hurry. He's going back to Atlanta tomorrow. He tells me he's found a Union gunboat, which uh, has to be raised and excavated and the armaments salvaged from it. Ned, I believe, as most of you know, have heard him before, can handle questioning better than anyone I know. Oh, wait. And I'm going to turn it all over to him and let him pull your questions and answer them. And I'm in the rear here, he won't see me, so I'm going to ask the first question. Is it not true in these principles of war that the greatest of generals deliberately violate one or more of the elements and exploit the other and become good generals because of it? Oh, <laughs> to say what you just said, not the question, but what you said before to this crowd is death on toast. Um, <laughs> But to answer your question, of course, I cited an example of that in Lee's case. Yes, first-class men can do these things and get by with it with astounding results. Yes, you're right. Some people violate a principle of war and make a very good plan, and it works, and they are. They are men of great reputation. That's true. You couldn't beat Lee when it came to a slick plan. Hmm? Gentlemen, uh, I face this outfit with fear and trembling. Now, don't... Uh, yes, sir? Uh, I've often wondered uh, where the names of the... 
Yes, yes. Ustanala is a, a sort of a bastardized uh, Cherokee name, as is um, as is the Etowa, but um, Chattahoochee is Creek. It's a Creek word. Been, uh, as I say, somewhat bastardized through the years. But you see those words ending in ee. They mean a stream, and that's from the Creek tongue, the basic Creek tongue. Uh, fire on the right. That's 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 he didn't have them guarding it. Canty was at Resaca. Canty had been given instructions to keep an eye out, patrol through the gap over as far as Villanau, four miles beyond. Canty didn't do it. He uh, I think some of his men went over to the gap and they saw enough and went home. Uh, the other brigade you're talking about is Grigsby's cavalry, who came down there on the same morning when they got the word, they got the tip-off, finally, in headquarters in Dalton. Then Grigsby's cavalry came down under WCP Breckenridge and had a fight out there with the advance guard person. No, there was no attempt to leave troops in there, because his troops were all useful for something. Yes? Did Pope's Mississippi Army play any part in this operation? Pope's, oh yes, yes, he became the third corps of John. I don't mean in a numerical sense, but in a, uh, in a full sense, he became one of the corps, the third one to join uh, General I mean, Johnson's army. I beg your pardon? Did he play any part in no, the No, Snake Creek Gap, no, no, he didn't. Uh, the first uh, one division, Loring's, of Pope's got in there in time to participate in the Battle of Osaka four days later, but now had no part in this other thing. Mind you, Johnson, at the outset of this, only had these two corps, and one of those was commanded by a first-class man, the other by a man who was, uh, I don't think even at that point, he trusted too far, and that was John Hood. Uh, he had no particular reason not to, except Hood was untested, except for a few hours at uh, Chickamauga, that is his corps commander. And then, too, his uh, social relations with the president and other people in Richmond probably made him a little suspect why he was out there, what purpose. We, we found out later on. Uh, yes? Uh, Would you say there was dissension among the uh, subordinates to Joe uh, Johnson? Uh, no, no, I wouldn't say so, uh, except that Hood uh, kept insisting that uh, he adopt other plans, that he go along with the Richmond idea of abandoning the communications and trying to invade Tennessee and thereby he thought scaring uh, Sherman out of his positions to back up from Tennessee. Uh, Hood, uh, there was dissension in that sense, yes, I think there was disloyalty. But uh, there, as far as any willingness to obey, a to obey orders once he got them, there was none of that. There wasn't the ability that Sherman enjoyed or that Lee enjoyed in the East. They all had good subordinates, and Johnson never had good subordinates except one, Hardy. Nothing wrong with Polk, except he's a fine gentleman, a fine a scholarly gentleman, except that he wasn't much of a soldier. That's <laughs> all. Uh, yes, sir, anybody else? Somebody, uh, yes, indeed. Uh, we want to get back to the general principles you were talking about. Uh -huh. First, I wanted to ask if you will agree with an observation, and that is that a theater commander, an independent commander has a certain privilege that no private or captain or lieutenant colonel has, namely of asking to be relieved if he doesn't agree with the orders he gets. Do you agree with uh, that general observation? Oh, yes, oh, yes, that's happened many times. Well, then, don't you think that loyalty is also mm -hmm. one of the most important and indispensable uh, principles without which no army certainly... Oh, you're quite right, you're quite right. According to uh, MacArthur, Korea, where you think he did so well, uh, but uh, where quite obviously he uh, disagreed with the orders he got from uh, his superior, his president in Washington, admitting that perhaps MacArthur knew more about what was going on there. But he had certain orders, and what they were, knew all the time what they were, did he not? Oh, yes, and he observed them scrupulously. Observed them scrupulously, but caught the thing in the newspapers at the same time, with his friends in Congress and so on, and then had his neck chopped off when he finally got up the north end of uh, Korea. Do you feel that MacArthur was loyal to his uh, orders? You, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we could start off on another program and keep going all night, but I will cap this, my own side of this, by saying this, that in a situation which uh, we may know the answers about someday, I think MacArthur was loyal to the United States of America. 
Remember, despite what the newspapers say, a soldier is still a citizen. Gentlemen, any more questions? Yes, sir. Do you feel that Johnson actually welcomed me? Oh yeah, well, he I should probably welcomed it. He, uh, when you're sitting there in a state of suspense, you want to get the thing over with and get going. I dare say he did. I wouldn't make a flat statement. If I were in his shoes, I'd be very happy to get off of this pincushion up there and get moving because he knew he had to do it. That's something that just 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 had to be done. Couldn't be avoided unless he wanted to be trapped in that that. Pete, I can't quite hear you. I'm sorry. The lack of well, car, which you knew was coming in. Uh, the main reason for Osama's that is an overly defensive position. Oh no, no, because when Polk, uh, when Polk would join him, even at that, the strength ratio would be about 10-4, leaving Sherman complete freedom of maneuver. No, he couldn't hold that place. He'd have been trapped uh, pretty quickly. No matter how good his people were, he'd been trapped. And, uh, well, gentlemen, any other? What yes, was the original cause of the feud between Johnson and Jeff Davis? The original cause of the feud between Johnson and Jeff Davis is lost in obscurity. I, um, some people claim that it happened at West Point over a girl. I don't know. It's easy to blame the women. But um, we, know it's, uh, we know it dates back to some years. Uh, Davis tried to block Johnson's appointment as quartermaster general, perhaps not because he had anything much against Johnson at the moment, because he was trying to elevate his own protege, Albert Sidney Johnson, at the time. We know it dates back to 1861 in April by a letter which, um, which um, Gilbert Govan and Jim Livingood dug up when they did their Johnson book a few years ago, in which Mrs. Johnson warns old Joe when he's deciding whether to stay with the Union or go with his native state, which a hundred years ago uh, had a little different connotation than it has today. She warned him in this letter, I can't quote her, but substantially she said, if you put him in, if you put yourself in his power, he, he hates you and he will ruin you. Now that's in April of 61, so it dates back beyond that, and it was a bitter thing, obviously. Ned Arnold, uh, both Sherman and Johnson, excellent examples of one of the requirements of high command, which is complete flexibility. Uh, you read, particularly those of us who are trying to wade through this big flood of literature on World War One, Guns of August and others, you see how so many capable men uh, got into trouble because of the devotion to a plan. And uh, they had planned this so carefully, and their subordinates were so sold on the plan, they didn't have any way to get out of it. There was no flexibility at all. This was it, and, and when something happened, they were completely lost. Both Johnson and, and, and Sherman were very flexible. They had overall plans, but they never hesitated to abandon anything at any moment. Oh, that's true. That's true. They were flexible. Neither was a dogmatist, certainly. I'd, uh, they, uh, if the plan got in the way of the success of the operation, the plan went out the window and something else was substituted right back. This is one of the great flaws with two men, with Hood and McClellan, who had one plan and no flexibility. And when it didn't work, we're, we're just lost. Well, I think you're being kind to Hood. But, uh, <laughs> it may have been inspired, you know, the inspired plan of an opium eater, but it was a plan. <laughs> Yes, sir. Can I ask you a hypothetical? How? Oh, you appear to be you, something of an admirer of Joe Johnson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's, that's, uh, that's substantially correct, thanks, sir. <laughs> well, I am too, but how do you think he would have done as compared with Lee if he had stayed, if he had been wounded in seven days? Well, that's a good question. Some battles wouldn't have been fought. Well, some battles wouldn't have been fought. He'd have been vast, vastly criticized, but I think in 1864, 18th the winter of 64 and 65, the Army of Northern Virginia would still have been in shape that Grant would not have taken Richmond. Now that's purely, uh, purely uh, out of air. I don't think the Army would have been wasted in fruitless endeavors, which uh, makes great stories and great historical accounts, but, uh, but the Confederacy could not afford. Well, that's my opinion, too. I just want to mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, gentlemen, thank you. My left foot is giving out. I'll. Uh